0: Hello and welcome to another instalment of Pablo's Channel. So yeah, we're up to the last chapter of Jebel Heard's uh, The Riddle of the Flying Sources is Another World Watching. Yeah, Fascinating read and um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. So in the background I'm playing some music, some more alien meditation sounds. This one's called Alien Contact is Easy with this Telepathy Sleep Meditation. I'm going to put you to sleep. Connect with Martians, by binaural beats. All healing sounds, all to, as Ralph Smart would say, raise that frequency. And okay, so... okay so uh, let's let's get on with it. It's uh, pretty late actually it's nearly half past eleven and um, it's the 23rd of July so I reckon you may be going into the 24th of July by the time we've finished this last chapter so uh, here we go so chapter 15 the big question where now? So here we go sirens going off again in New Brighton a strange word to write when we are right in the middle of what seems a great the greatest of third acts and yet what else can one say we don't know from day to day whether we shall get a word more of news however enigmatic we don't know whether the visitors will give us any more we don't know whether we shall be uh, shall be let receive it. Now that our long smouldering lines of dispute have at one point broken into crackling flame, will not all general news be held up on the chance that it might give news that ought to be kept under cover? Still we need not close on pessimistic note on a pessimistic note. For as we have seen, after a lull in the USA sightings, or maybe simply a lull in the reporting of such sightings, it was from Korea that we had at the beginning of, la- of the last year, on the nights of January the 29th and the 30th, the first of a swarm of new items: two air squadrons, one on the Korean east coast and another in West Central Korea. Sighted flights of orange coloured globes fall to be no more than three feet in diameter. On the same day, the 29th, the pilot flying north from Washington, D.C. reported to the Civil Aeronautics Authority that he had sighted a strange and excessively bright star that raced past his plane and lit up the cockpit. On March 13th, the Boston Traveller carried a careful report from Dr. A. H. Baller I have spoken with the doctor himself, a fine witness and a careful observer he has a full account which he wrote immediately after the incident sitting in the train at Greenfield on February 20th he viewed three disks in ordered flight by April the sightings were not only numerous but one can pick out on the new features and important information. On the 18th, Las Vegas reported a covey flying near the Nevada atom test site. Five men at the Nellis Air Force Base counted 18 objects, estimating they were at 40,000 feet and cruising at 1,200 miles per hour. While on the 21st, William Pugh, that's P-U-G-H Of the Cleveland Electrical Illumination Company Hearing a strange high-pitched note Sound three times Looked up and saw a saucer cruising overhead Saucers are seldom heard but because they generally cruise too high Above 25,000 feet Little sound comes down to us From that altitude The note they make may also be supersonic. This sighting and sounding suggests that the note was near the upper limits of audibility. Mr. Pugh said it sounded like a bat's note, which we know is near the limits of human hearing. Cleveland also had another remarkable sighting made in mid-April by D.W. Radford, radio operator of Eastern Airlines. The remarkable thing about this disc was that it kept in sight for half an hour. It seemed to be moving slowly away from the sky. Late in the month, on the 29th, the Air Force permitted one of its officials to report that an unidentified object was sighted over Los Alamos. It was above the site for more than 30 minutes. May carry. May and the mother, May carried with a peculiarly convincing story of Navy Secretary Dan Kimball. His plane sighted a disc when he was flying to Guam. The Secretary told the story to officers and air cadets at Pensacola. His own pilot had come in and told him that a disc was near. He told the pilot to uh, to radio the plane that was following him a stern. It replied, We too have seen it. And May brought reports, the month of May, uh, and May brought reports from Australia. Thirteen people in wildly separated spots sent in accounts to Sydney about a huge tube that they had seen cruising at high speed. This type of craft was also reported from Tarbes in France on the 30th of June by July a source of maximum was clearly being approached 16 given sightings were made in Chicago during the first week from Berlin came the sworn statement from Oscar Link a fugitive mayor from East Germany who in the town of Meningen that's M-E-I-N E-G E-N sorry G-E-N sort of saucer on the ground then of course came the great outburst culminating with the two big displays during the latter part of July over Washington itself August had many sightings and in September there were a number though though the press carried few one of the best was given to me personally by Mr. Caitlin of St. Louis or St. Louis he and Mrs. Caitlin were driving home from New York when close to the border of Pennsylvania they saw, with many other observers, a fleet of seven saucers cruising overhead and going onward to the west. On the 20th September, a saucer had been seen by official observers over the Baltic manoeuvring area of the 8th Nation Fleet. This disc was seen to chase a meteor jet fighter and then rush off into the sky. Finally, in December, there was a fine sighting over the sea made by three observers from Santa Monica Pier. one thing we may be certain, these phenomena continue. They are giving us fresh viewings, more variety, increase of good witnesses, and new detail on the cruising power and features of design. If we go on making these observations and pooling our information, we shall surely gain increasing knowledge we said earlier, the conclusions that we reach will, of necessity, be according to what we think probable. But what has happened to our poor, standard, old-fashioned, common-sense notion of probability? Once, all sensible men, all educated persons, thought much the same about certain basic things. They might vary as to detail, but about the great map of things. Here is the land of facts, and there the ocean of surmise. They had no doubt. But now the land has been inundated with surmise and out of the ocean stand up queer stubborn enigmatic rocks of fact on which our traffic steamers or common sense get frightful bumps and some founder. If only we had a clear, sensible explanation. But whichever explanation you take, you will have to stomach a painful amount of credulity, credulity, credulity. If you say it's all hallucination, well then, hundreds of witnesses, as sober, as cautious, and maybe many of them more informed than you, are just dolts, D-O-L-T-S, and make fools of themselves for no purpose. If that is so, what am I to think of my own powers of observation? Are we all going mad and seeing things? Say then, it's a secret weapon. Do face up to that. what that involves. Don't say it just because it sounds easy. It isn't. It means that responsible persons have misled the public. Remember, they never said no one anywhere in this world or outside is making flying discs. They only said we are not. It means also that by letting these vast new inventions stray about on the civilian flying airlift, they have endangered the lives of those travelling in planes, risked the lives of harmless citizen pathogens who might be killed, and killed horribly, by being burnt to death. No, no considerate, responsible person, let alone a whole bunch of them, would dream of doing any such thing, or taking any such risk. I know it, you know it, we all know it. And yet, and yet, and yet foreign powers we may cling to as a man being pushed off a raft into the sea may cling to the smallest spar. We know it isn't true. Again, they just couldn't afford if they had such a grand slam weapon to go and throw it away and risk losing the whole bag of secret tricks. The great enigmatic Iron Curtain or Iron Mask country has plenty of space in which to try out secret weapons if it has them. To send them idly cruising over the United States is not toughness, it's not even brag, it's just insanity. If the intended war, what a relief to know they have gone off their heads and forgotten the first rules of war. Secrecy and surprise. So we must let the spark of foreign powers go It won't hold the weight of argument from which we can't shake ourselves free. The weight of evidence that can't be dismissed. Where then can we find rest for our load? To what depth of space are we driven to sink? Would to heaven there were some easier, nearer and at the same time less hackneyed, less romanticised place to rest than Mars? It is so ridiculous and to use the now somewhat dated word, so shy-making to find that we have to take refuge on that H.G. Wells hideout, that nest and breeding ground of the least respectable science fiction. But, as has been said, truth cares little about for our dignity, hence we so often try to suffocate that infant terrible, or infant terrible that unwanted child of intelligence. It is that more than dread, that I believe keeps us from considering seriously the Martian Hypothesis. There really does not seem much reason to fear that we shall be panicked by a Martian appearing. For what will he be like? As far as we can tell, in all probability a super bee of perhaps two inches in length, as they have existed for so long on Mars as it is presumed they now have no enemies they ever had, as we know natural selection is a negative force and clips things back and reduces them to the plainest shapes, then these creatures of a world where intelligence has won total freedom from brutal repressive force, where life is free to be as beautiful as it cares. Why, then, creatures as sensitive to colour, as gifted with sight as bees, would be as beautiful as the most beautiful flower they have ever visited. As beautiful as any beetle, moth or butterfly. A creature with eyes like brilliant cut diamonds, with a head of sapphire, a thorax of emerald, an abdomen of ruby, wings like opal, legs like topaz. Such a body would be worthy of this supermind. I am sure that toward it, our reaction would be what a diadem of living jewels that's a d i d i a d e m diadem of living jewels it is we who would feel shabby and ashamed and maybe with our clammy putty-colored bodies repulsive of course in spite of the beauty of insects in spite of the fact that our somewhat bulging bodies patchily covered with hair, and for the rest, mainly the tint of a toadstool, may not be that acne of aesthetic charm we have presumed them to be. We must allow that we should find it hard to make friends with anything that had more than two legs and didn't stilt about as we do. The place, Mars, is bad enough. The product, insects, makes bad worse. Our intelligence might approve, our aesthetic senses concede, but our brute feelings would shy as a horse shies at a peacock. Of course it is all a matter of what our reaction might be to what till now has been treated as inconceivable, none of us can be sure of that. He jests at scars who never felt a wound, says Shakespeare, people who have never been desperately bereaved write skits about widows. We know what has been the reception given to the statistically established evidence for extra perception by men who consider themselves not only highly educated but scientific, who maintain that they sat down as a little child before a fact. The phrase is, of course, that of T. H. Huxley. The truth was, as was shown by Huxley himself when he was asked to examine some evidence that psychical research was bringing to light and replied rudely, because of course of subconscious fear, that he would not even inquire. The truth was and is that the elasticity of our minds is not to be stretched indefinitely simply by the weight of evidence, the force of facts. We have and emotional tolerance as to what we can stand. And when that limit is reached, we repress. No student of human nature, no examiner of his own conscience, needed Freud to tell him that. But so many scientists have never so inquired of themselves, have never examined the instrument. Their particular mind and emotion complex, with which they have to try and grasp the world with which they focus on and then try and understand facts. So we come back to the point made when we were discussing early in this book the way the evidence has come together and what we can make of it. What canons we have for establishing the meaning of the observations that have been made. There it was said everyone in the end must be his own judge. One by one we shall make up our minds. Some may come to the most awkward but best established conclusion gradually. Others may never be able to gain the freedom that would permit in this extreme respect an open mind. Probably the old will find it harder than the young and as it is a personal question then perhaps the final contribution that can be made here is for the reporter to put himself into the report as the last exhibit. As they say in evidence at a trial, the last fragment of evidence, the barrister may put himself in the witness box. The judge call on himself to testify. As an average elderly man, the writer of these lines finds himself, when all the data is laid out and arranged, still divided. Not of two minds, the mind has at last been driven to these conclusions, step by step. For six years it has been made to retreat to this uncomfortable and indeed scandalous spot. The force of the evidence would not let it halt short of this. It is one's feelings that refuse to follow. Stubbornly, they remain earthbound. They seem to be incurably conventional. Their reaction, which seems immune to evidence, is the old, perpetually disproved cliché. It never has happened before. It just can't have happened now. Irrational, but all too natural. Anyone who is elderly today has seen enough things happen that all informed all scientific opinion was certain could not happen. When Rottergen discovered x-rays, he said to his wife, not how wonderful for the world, how amazed and happy my colleagues will be, no. Knowing this, his world and his colleagues are as actual persons, he remarked grimly, now there'll be the devil to pay. Dewar, D-E-W-A-R who made the first vacuum flasks the Thermos when his younger men began to talk the new physics, used to get angry, tell them to stop their fantasy and get back to facts. Haeckel H-A-E- C K E L, the intense champion of evolution by natural selection, sheltered in a conference with the new Mendelians, Mendelians and Mendel, Mendelians. You are simply throwing back everything back to Moses. Yes, we can see generation after generation: the wise, the authorities, the informed, the specialists, the men who are called and honoured by the ambiguous but honourable name, the scientists We see them telling each believing age, very willing to believe that they won't have to believe more than now is revealed, that all is now settled, that the canon is for all intents and purposes closed. We shall get endless additions to our present evidence for our present laws and experiences, but none that will turn them upside down. And yet, generation after generation, the whole thing moves slowly, turning right over. And today we have to own that, not only is this going on, but it is going on no longer slowly, quite the reverse. We now turn over our fixed opinions, we are forced by facts. As quickly as a boat capsizes, it is wise then to be able to swim and not demand a boat of dogmas to carry us. But, though the process has immensely accelerated in our generation, it has been going on for at least 25 centuries to our certain knowledge. This kind of thing has not been sprung on. us. Moreover, we have had plenty of time to notice our reaction to this sort of experience. We go through three phases with a monotonous and rather discouraging regularity. There, as we say, what rot, what mischievous nonsense, such a fraud, report of the fact we find detestable, because indigestible should be shut up. It is as dangerous as it is repulsively ridiculous. Next we begin to joke about it. The thing we own has something of the lewdly funny about it. But of course, it is really only a joke with which to tease and upset the pompous. Without anyone noting it, the whole thing has become obvious, banal, boring. A commonplace only noted to show how hopelessly backward, silly and prejudiced our elders were. The process is over for the time being. We have adjusted, but we have learnt nothing. Nothing about ourselves. And when the next shock comes, the next breakthrough of unaccepted fact... We react once more in the same way. The story for Occidental man, the European that has read till he has reached the Pacific, began in Asia Minor, the Turkey of today, perhaps somewhere about 600 BC. And each step, we have to note, each step to let observation and evidence count was fought, and often to the death, because it made men feel they were, at least physically, of less importance than they thought they were. We certainly have, as an unexamined assumption in all our minds, the conviction that we are immensely important, influential, significant, the most important and advanced thing in the entire universe. The animals were put in the world for our use. Though, as a wise vegetarian once said, I have yet to receive the invoice the stars were placed in the sky to instruct each of us in advance as to how we may we may most profitably steer our course and make money so when the ionian philosophers the first empiricists fact finders and lovers and free theorists the first scientists men who wished to experiment observe analyze trace when these men on the coast of asia minor Began to speculate, they were soon in trouble. But their speculation soon began to question the assumption of man's supreme importance and his kindred assumption that the world was made and run by beings almost exactly like men men writ large and all too human. When Anaxagoras, that's a A-N-A-X-A-G, O-R-A-S Anax born about 500 BC began to suggest that the sun was not the body of a living god but a mass of molten metal about the size of Peloponnese, the small peninsula which the Greece terminates oh I've been to the Peloponnese he was bitterly attacked tried for blasphemy a conviction would have meant death got off by the special pleading of his friend Pericles but had to fly the city, the city of Athens to which he had gone to live because it was the centre of Greek culture and open enquiry! When free inquiry started again after the Greek collapse with the Renaissance when the Polish Bishop Copernic uh, began to speculate again About the night sky and how the stars really ran and how Earth's relation to them, his friends dared to publish his book only after his death. He was cautious even in his actual expressions, and for a little while it seemed that the whole thing might be regarded as a specialist dispute, a stupid piece of expert argument and of no concern to sensible men. But soon our insane suspicion. That our self-importance might be in question, awoke, and there was, in the usual name of theology, the devil to pay. Giordano Bruno, the rash man believing that facts could speak and should be spoken of, defied authority in his own lair, and to the shame of all concerned, that the lasting discredit of their judgment and their charity was burnt alive. Galileo's story which follows historically on Bruno's, is even better known, but discovering more facts about the stars and planets, he got into equally hot water, but escaped the actual torture and the flame by recanting. What is not so well known is that Galileo's own mind was anything but a free one, open to all the evidence, for when he was studying that anomalous planet, Saturn, he had only a small telescope, and naturally and did not discover the rings with which he might have been content as they did not disturb his prejudices his assumptions what he did see was well, what everyone using a small telescope does see when, when he looks at solar planet number 6 there is a bright body and on each side of it can be seen, at least generally, two less bright bodies, almost like wings on an insect. Then, if you watch night after night, one night the wings, the, the two side bodies are gone. We now know why. As mentioned above, the disk of the rings is so thin that only a very big modern telescope will show that rim when it is end. When it's his end onto the earth. But Galileo did did not know this, and he could not think what had happened. And while he was in suspense there, rushed into his mind the old superstitious story about the god Saturn. Had he stumbled on evidence that would confirm and not challenge ancient tradition, this was just too bad. No more than T.H. Huxley was, he prepared to sit down humbly as a little child before fact. If fact chose to be disloyal, change sides, and instead of properly vexing bishops, support them and vex scientists. Galileo wrote in his diary with indignant wonder, does then Saturn indeed, as tradition had said, eat his own children? Could it be that the hateful, tyrannous, anthropomorphic stick in the muds had after all known more about the stars than he the great revolutionary pioneer the question was too painful it was impossible but what if it was true to ask question to ask question was of course to be bound to follow it up to study and study again observe and observe to ask the question was right enough and though painful enough it was less painful than going on to see whether after all the, all the old had not been wholly wrong. Galileo asked it, and then his nerve failed. His courage gave out. He did not go on and make the further observations. Observations that must, in the end, as it did with later inquirers, lead to the wonderful and in its, in its way reassuring discovery of the rings. No, he couldn't face the risk. We know that he never studied Saturn again. There are facts too awkward for us to accept, even when we are great pioneer scientists. We fear the results to us personally, to our prestige and our prejudices. The Earth, however, with man on it, had been put in its place. Planet number three, and one of the small ones. Of the sun, a late addition to our demoting, that is only an orange dwarf. But till this generation we hung on to two concepts of our uniqueness. The uniqueness of our station in space and of our place in the whole hierarchy of life. The Earth, we said, is the only planet with life, and the solar system the only system with planets. So we are the only life in the universe. Minute But unique, and making up for the lack of quantity, for our lack of size, by the intensity of our quality, our rarity. Evolution might show that we were sprung from some animal stock, but we alone had reached the top, come out on the platform of intelligence and self conscious understanding, able to see things steadily and see them whole. And then at the two ends of our argument, we were attacked and both flanks have given way. Hundreds of thousands of suns are now said to have planets that gives away our uniqueness. Further, right up against us, in the solar system, our companion, Mars, has life and there is no reason to suppose that it is not in advance of us. While right beside our actual homes, in every beehive, there are intelligences, insects that can think, plan, make maps, give bearings, exchange information. They are apparently conscious and they are not even mammals, warm-blooded, big-brained, they are insects. And the life that is on Mars has probably taken to insect form to raise itself to a pinnacle of understanding above our highest reach today. Our pride is in ruins, but need we feel that life is emptied of significance? Surely, Unless we are insane egotists, the opposite is the truth. We have lost our paranoid loneliness and dream of utter superiority, but we have found companions, yes, and possible guides, minds that have gone ahead of ours. Is not this good news of the highest quality and of the utmost aptness? Shall we reject the possibility out of hand? Are we doing so well on our own? Have we, with our new powers and trust in man alone, have we done so well? Having conquered all the other species, or at least made them shun us, have we? Homo self-styled sapiens, settled down to peace, prosperity and progress. Look at the map, look at the news. One of our shrewdest observers did indeed remark, even before our present extravagances of uncontrolled violence against one another. It is doubtful in what form were they given to such reflections. The lower creation, the animals, will conceive of the supreme principle of good. There can, alas, be no doubt of the form in which they would imagine the principle of evil as a white man. And now, a scientific white man means the same principle of exterminating pitiless destruction not only for other species but for our own for ourselves and our children there seems then here and now no right feeling any more than right and adequate reason why we should refuse with either heart or mind the present possibility that hangs over us it may be an offer if so it could not be more apposite why should we refuse at least to consider it and that's the end It says it w- Will readers send in any sightings To the Civilian Source Investigation Committee Box 1971 Main Post Office, Los Angeles 53, California These reports, if it is desired Will be kept confidential There you go Gerald Hurd's The riddle of the flying saucers Is another world watching all recorded with my lovely voice (laughs) on Pablo's channel thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed tuning in and stay tuned in for more readings of high quality insights ciao ciao